Chapter Two of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. The Green Donkey Driver. The bell of Monastier was just striking nine as I got quit of these preliminary troubles and descended the hill through the common. As long as I was within sight of the windows, a secret shame and the fear of some laughable defeat withheld me from tampering with Modestine. She tripped along upon her four small hoofs with a sober daintiness of gait. From time to time she shook her ears or her tail, and she looked so small under the bundle that my mind misgave me. We got across the ford without difficulty. There was no doubt about the matter. She was docility itself. And once on the other bank, where the road begins to mount through pine woods, I took in my right hand the unhallowed staff, and with a quaking spirit applied it to the donkey. Modestine brisked up her pace for perhaps three steps, and then relapsed into her former minuet. Another application had the same effect, and so with the third. I am worthy the name of an Englishman, and it goes against my conscience to lay my hand rudely on a female. I desisted, and looked her all over from head to foot. The poor brute's knees were trembling, and her breathing was distressed. It was plain that she could go no faster on a hill. God forbid, thought I, that I should brutalise this innocent creature. Let her go at her own pace, and let me patiently follow. What that pace was, there is no word mean enough to describe. It was something as much slower than a walk, as a walk is slower than a run. It kept me hanging on each foot for an incredible length of time. In five minutes it exhausted the spirit, and set up a fever in all the muscles of the leg. And yet I had to keep close at hand, and measure my advance exactly upon hers. For if I dropped a few yards into the rear, or went on a few yards ahead, Modestine came instantly to a halt and began to browse. The thought that this was to last from here to Alais nearly broke my heart. Of all conceivable journeys this promised to be the most tedious. I tried to tell myself it was a lovely day. I tried to charm my foreboding spirit with tobacco. But I had a vision ever present to me of the long, long roads, uphill and down dale, and a pair of figures ever infinitesimally moving, foot by foot, a yard to the minute, and like things enchanted in a nightmare, approaching no nearer to the goal. In the meantime there came up behind us a tall peasant, perhaps forty years of age, of an ironical, snuffy countenance, and arrayed in the green tailcoat of the country. He overtook us hand over hand, and stopped to consider our pitiful advance. "'Your donkey,' says he, "'is very old?' I told him I believed not. Then he supposed we had come far. I told him we had but newly left Monastier. "'Et vous marchez comme ça?' cried he, and throwing back his head he laughed long and heartily. I watched him, half prepared to feel offended, until he had satisfied his mirth, and then, "'You must have no pity on these animals,' said he and plucking a switch out of a thicket, he began to lace Modestine about the stern-works, uttering a cry. The rogue pricked up her ears and broke into a good round pace, which she kept up without flagging and without exhibiting the least symptom of distress as long as the peasant kept beside us. 
her former panting and shaking had been i regret to say a piece of comedy my deus ex machina before he left me supplied some excellent if inhumane advice presented me with the switch which he declared she would feel more tenderly than my cane and finally taught me the true cry or masonic word of donkey drivers prut all the time he regarded me with a comical incredulous air which was embarrassing to confront and smiled over my donkey driving as i might have smiled over his orthography or his green tailcoat but it was not my turn for the moment i was proud of my new law and thought i had learnt the art to perfection and certainly modestine did wonders for the rest of the forenoon and i had a breathing space to look about me it was sabbath the mountain fields were all vacant in the sunshine and as we came down through saint martin de frigere the church was crowded to the door there were people kneeling without upon the steps and the sound of the priests chanting came forth out of the dim interior it gave me a home feeling on the spot for i am a countryman of the sabbath so to speak and all sabbath observances like a scottish accent strike in me mixed feelings grateful and the reverse it is only a traveller hurrying by like a person from another planet who can rightly enjoy the peace and beauty of the great ascetic feast the sight of the resting country does his spirit good there is something better than music in the wide unusual silence and it disposes him to amiable thoughts like the sound of a little river or the warmth of sunlight in this pleasant humour i came down the hill to where goudet stands in a green end of a valley with chateau beaufort opposite upon a rocky steep and the stream as clear as crystal lying in a deep pool between them above and below you may hear it wimpling over the stones an amiable stripling of a river which it seems absurd to call the loire on all sides goudet is shut in by mountains rocky footpaths practicable at best for donkeys join it to the outer world of france and the men and women drink and swear in their green corner or look up at the snow-clad peaks in winter from the threshold of their homes in an isolation you would think like that of homer's cyclops but it is not so the postman reaches goudet with the letter-bag the aspiring youth of goudet are within a day's walk of the railway at le puy and here in the inn you may find an engraved portrait of the host's nephew regis senac professor of fencing and champion of the two americas a distinction gained by him along with the sum of five hundred dollars at tammany hall new york on the tenth april eighteen seventy six i hurried over my midday meal and was early forth again but alas as we climbed the interminable hill upon the other side prout seemed to have lost its virtue i prouted like a lion i prouted mellifluously like a sucking dove but modestine would be neither softened nor intimidated she held doggedly to her pace nothing but a blow would move her and that only for a second I must follow at her heels, incessantly belabouring. A moment's pause in this ignoble toil, and she relapsed into her own private gait. I think I never heard of anyone in as mean a situation. I must reach the lake of Boucher, where I meant to camp, before sundown. And to have even a hope of this, I must instantly maltreat this uncomplaining animal. The sound of my own blows sickened me once when i looked at her she had a faint resemblance to a lady of my acquaintance 
who formerly loaded me with kindness, and this increased my horror of my cruelty. To make matters worse, we encountered another donkey, ranging at will upon the roadside, and this other donkey chanced to be a gentleman. He and Modestine met nickering for joy, and I had to separate the pair and beat down their young romance with a renewed and feverish bastinado. If the other donkey had had the heart of a male under his hide, he would have fallen upon me tooth and hoof. And this was a kind of consolation. He was plainly unworthy of Modestine's affection. But the incident saddened me, as did everything that spoke of my donkey's sex. It was blazing hot up the valley, windless, with vehement sun upon my shoulders, and I had to labour so consistently with my stick that the sweat ran into my eyes. Every five minutes, too, the pack, the basket, and the pilot coat would take an ugly slew to one side or the other, and I had to stop Modestine, just when I had got her to a tolerable pace of about two miles an hour, to tug, push, shoulder, and readjust the load. And at last, in the village of Ussel, saddle and all, the whole hypothec turned round and grovelled in the dust below the donkey's belly. She, none better pleased, incontinently drew up and seemed to smile, and a party of one man, two women, and two children came up, and standing round me in a half-circle, encouraged her by their example. I had the devil's own trouble to get the thing righted, and the instant I had done so, without hesitation, it toppled and fell down upon the other side. Judge if I was hot, and yet not a hand was offered to assist me. The man, indeed, told me I ought to have a package of a different shape. I suggested, if he knew nothing better to the point in my predicament, he might hold his tongue, and the good-natured dog agreed with me, smilingly. It was the most despicable fix. I must plainly content myself with the pack for Modestine, and take the following items for my own share of the portage. A cane, a quart flask, a pilot jacket heavily weighted in the pockets, two pounds of black bread, and an open basket full of meats and bottles. I believe I may say I am not devoid of greatness of soul, for I did not recoil from this infamous burden. I disposed it, heaven knows how, so as to be mildly portable, and then proceeded to steer Modestine through the village. She tried, as was indeed her invariable habit, to enter every house and every courtyard in the whole length and encumbered as I was without a hand to help myself, no words can render an idea of my difficulties. A priest, with six or seven others, was examining a church in process of repair, and he and his acolytes laughed loudly as they saw my plight. I remembered having laughed myself when I had seen good men struggling with adversity in the person of a jackass, and the recollection filled me with penitence. That was in my old light days before this trouble came upon me. God knows, at least, that I shall never laugh again, thought I. But, oh, what a cruel thing is a farce to those engaged in it! A little out of the village, Modestine, filled with the demon, set her heart upon a by-road, and positively refused to leave it. I dropped all my bundles, and I am ashamed to say, struck the poor sinner twice across the face. It was pitiful to see her lift her head with shut eyes, as if waiting for another blow. I came very near crying, but I did a wiser thing than that, and sat squarely down by the roadside to consider my situation under the cheerful influence of tobacco 
and a nip of brandy. Modestine, in the meanwhile, munched some black bread with a contrite, hypocritical air. It was plain that I must make a sacrifice to the gods of shipwreck. I threw away the empty bottle destined to carry milk, I threw away my own white bread, and, disdaining to act by general average, kept the black bread for Modestine. Lastly, I threw away the cold leg of mutton and the egg whisk, although this last was dear to my heart. Thus I found room for everything in the basket, and even stowed the boating coat on the top. By means of an end of cord I slung it under one arm, and although the cord cut my shoulder and the jacket hung almost to the ground, it was with a heart greatly lightened that I set forth again. I now had an arm free to thrash Modestine, and cruelly I chastised her. If I were to reach the lakeside before dark, she must bestir her little shanks to some tune. Already the sun had gone down into a windy-looking mist, and although there were still a few streaks of gold far off to the east on the hills and the black fir-woods, all was cold and grey about our onward path. An infinity of little country by-roads led hither and thither among the fields. It was the most pointless labyrinth. I could see my destination overhead, or rather the peak that dominates it, but choose as I pleased, the roads always ended by turning away from it and sneaking back towards the valley, or northward along the margin of the hills. The failing light, the waning colour, the naked, unhomely, stony country through which I was travelling, threw me into some despondency. I promise you, the stick was not idle. I think every decent step that Modestine took must have cost me at least two emphatic blows. There was not another sound in the neighbourhood but that of my unwearying bastinado. Suddenly, in the midst of my toils, the load once more bit the dust, and as by enchantment all the cords were simultaneously loosened and the road scattered with my dear possessions, the packing was to begin again from the beginning, and as I had to invent a new and better system, I do not doubt but I lost half an hour. It began to be dusk in earnest as I reached a wilderness of turf and stones. It had the air of being a road which should lead everywhere at the same time, and I was falling into something not unlike despair when I saw two figures stalking towards me over the stones. They walked one behind the other like tramps, but their pace was remarkable. The sun led the way, a tall, ill-made, sombre, Scottish-looking man. The mother followed, all in her Sunday's best, with an elegantly embroidered ribbon to her cap, and a new felt hat atop, and proffering, as she strode along with kilted petticoats, a string of obscene and blasphemous oaths. I hailed the son, and asked him my direction. He pointed loosely west and northwest, muttered an inaudible comment, and without slackening his pace for an instant, stalked on as he was going, right athwart my path. The mother followed, without so much as raising her head. I shouted and shouted after them, but they continued to scale the hillside and turned a deaf ear to my outcries. At last, leaving Modestine by herself, I was constrained to run after them, hailing the while. They stopped as I drew near, the mother still cursing, and I could see she was a handsome, motherly, respectable-looking woman. The son once more answered me roughly and inaudibly, and was for setting out again. But this time I simply collared the mother who was nearest me, and apologising for my violence, declared that I could not let them go until they had put me on my road. They were neither of them offended, rather mollified than otherwise, told me I had only to follow them, and then the mother asked me what I wanted by the lake at such an hour. 
I replied in the Scottish manner by inquiring if she had far to go herself. She told me with another oath that she had an hour and a half's road before her, and then without salutation the pair strode forward again up the hillside in the gathering dusk. I returned for Modestine, pushed her briskly forward, and after a sharp ascent of twenty minutes reached the edge of a plateau. The view, looking back on my day's journey, was both wild and sad. Mount Mesanque and the peaks beyond Saint-Julien stood out in trenchant gloom against a cold glitter in the east, and the intervening field of hills had fallen together into one broad wash of shadow, except here and there the outline of a wooded sugar-loaf in black, here and there a white irregular patch to represent a cultivated farm, and here and there a blot where the Loire, the Gazay, or the Lausanne wandered in a gorge. Soon we were on a high road, and surprise seized on my mind as I beheld a village of some magnitude close at hand, for I had been told that the neighbourhood of the lake was uninhabited, except by trout. The road smoked in the twilight with children driving home cattle from the fields, and a pair of mounted, stride-legged women, hat and cap and all, dashed past me at a hammering trot from the canton where they had been to church and market. I asked one of the children where I was. At Boucher Saint-Nicolas, he told me, thither about a mile south of my destination, and on the other side of a respectable summit, had these confused roads and treacherous peasantry conducted me. My shoulder was cut so that it hurt sharply, my arm ached like toothache from perpetual beating. I gave up the lake and my design to camp, and asked for the auberge. End of chapter 2